everyone. Welcome back to The Screenwriting Life. I am Meg Lafove. And Lorraine is not here today, but producer Jeff is. And we are so excited to be talking about part three of your amazing beginner questions. If you haven't, we've done both a part one and part two, kind of talking in general about not only where to begin, but some of those exciting beginner questions that we ask as emerging writers. So go back and listen to those parts if you're just catching our show for the first time. But without further ado, uh, Meg, we're going to start with a question from Kara. Uh, it could be Kara, but either way, she asks, how does one know that they have the main relationship? And what are some guideposts or checkpoints one can refer to to ensure the main relationship is the correct one? Big question. Um, we could do a whole show on relationships and main relationships, but I will try to condense here just into kind of the biggest points. And by the way, main relationship is just something that I coined when I was teaching at UCLA because I kept finding I was asking the same questions over and over, which we did post those questions on the Facebook group. So you can go take a look over there at those questions, which is just kind of like the the 10 to 20 questions to ask yourself about your um, the project you're working on, for mainly for features. But one of those questions is, what's the main relationship? Um, you know, telling a story is a lot of things, but I think one of the main reasons we all listen to storytelling, whether it's over a campfire or whether it's in a movie or on a TV or an audio uh, drama is for relationship. And what we invest in and care about is a, is a relationship or multiple relationships. Um, even if your story doesn't end with the plot well, i.e. Rocky can lose the fight, but what we care about is, of course, that relationship and where it ends up. And Lindsay Duran does an amazing um, seminar on this in terms of why we care so much about relationships in storytelling, which if you can uh, hear that, it might be on YouTube. Um, but I coined the term main relationship because for me, it's a great question to ask as you're developing your project. Again, I don't think it's something you might talk to actors about or a director potentially, but as for the writing process, especially if you have a lot of relationships, what I mean by main relationship is what is the relationship that is really the one spawning the story with the main character? Um, and it's a relationship that is moving along the structure with the main character as their core main relationship, even if it doesn't look like it from the surface, especially to start, if that makes sense. So as an example, in uh, Inside Out, there was a lot of discussion about what's the main relationship because I kept asking as we were developing it. And because different people on the on our that were doing it with us, were developing it together, had been on the project for many years and um, so there were different ideas because there were different iterations of the story. So there were ideas that it's Bing Bong. Bing Bong is the main relationship because we all cry when he dies. <laughs> like this has to be the main relationship. It's so impactful. And there was another contingent that was like, no, clearly, clearly Riley is the main relationship. She is the most important thing to Joy. Um, and my view in terms of a creator, a story creator, I have to create structure. I have to create this story. Um, is it's sadness because Joy's arc is to recognize and understand that sadness is needed by Riley and sadness is with her on the whole journey and sadness is starts to become a barometer for Joy, for me as the creator, for Joy's change. How is she interacting with sadness? Um, 
So for me, that became the main relationship. That does not mean I've got a big like neon sign in act one. This is the main relationship. Now you can sometimes have that, but you don't have to, right? I would love it if everybody in the theater has no idea because they love all these different relationships. But for me, the structuring relationship, right? The one that is there usually in act one doesn't have to be, but that is on act two and on that journey with her and is kind of the core deepest emotional relationship, right? That doesn't mean that Bing Bong is an important relationship. He is, but he's somebody that comes and goes and teaches uh, Joy something and leaves, right? He's not on that whole journey with her and he's not part of the core, core thing she realizes. He helps her realize that, but he's not that. And Riley is more the prize, right? Riley is the thing that we're fighting for. That needs a lot of emotional commitment and, and attachment from the audience because they have to want to help Riley too, right? So you, you're going to have an ice skating scene so that we, we fall in love with this little girl and want joy, want her to be happy. So for me, that's how I know what the main relationship is. Even if I have an ensemble, look at The Wizard of Oz. Um, it's there, she, she collects people on her road trip, right? But if you really, really look at it, it's the scarecrow, right? And, you know, what does she whisper as she leaves? I'll miss you most of all, right? There's a core, core relationship that she has at the bottom. The other relations are important, but that's the main relationship. And he's the first one she goes to, right? So think, I'm always, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, Meg, do you think it's safe to say, like, when you think about your protagonist, there's probably going to be one character that's in your story to push and challenge your protagonist's belief systems the most. Like, yes. it's going to be a person that is, like, like most essential in your story to like kind of confront your protagonist, even if it's their friend or their romantic partner or their parents, it's the person that's going to kind of confront your protagonist most to assess what they think and believe about the world. I think. Well, yes. In that every character, if they're in your movie is there to confront or challenge your main character's belief system and what they, how they're evolving. Otherwise, why are they in there? Um, but it's the one that's doing it. Yes. The most, they become they can they don't have to become a mirror of that shift and they're helping us see the change because of how they're responding and behaving with that person and um it they're in the whole movie like again it's not somebody who's going to come in and out um again these are just my definitions i don't if it doesn't work for you i don't that's good it just helps me really know at the end of this movie at the end of Inside Out, it's joy and sadness at the controls because sadness has brought her back over and they together, hands together, work, right? Because this, and if you, and so what I do sometimes in terms of guideposts or checkpoints on your main relationship is I will say to myself, what are the, what are the tent poles of this relationship? What is an image that you can see in behavior, because I'm talking about feature film now, of this relationship and how has that image completely changed at the end? So it literally was on the wall that Ronnie Del Carmen drew it. Keep sadness away from the controls and the core memories. And at the end, hand them over and let her drive. Right. These are behavior things, right? Because your character really shows who they are in their behavior, even more than they talk because people lie. Right. So I sometimes in terms of guideposts, I first say what relationship is spining the entire structure and helping create structure with the main character and which relationship is. I could see kind of visual behavioral tent poles in act one and act three to really show the shift, right? The main relationship doesn't always have to be 
integrally apart thematically about what your character's learning, but their behavior in that relationship will help show it. And I agree, Jeff, it doesn't mean that because they're confronting the main character, that doesn't mean that they're opposites or, you know, this is a, a antagonistic relationship. Not at all. You can be confronted by your best friend in a lovely, joyful moment too. Like it's, it's not about tone of that relationship. So that's what I really look for. Um, I find that there are movies that sometimes get so big and they try to have so many relationships that in the end, you don't care about any of them. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. and, and, and so it's, it's not that you can't have a lot of relationships, but ultimately what's the core relationship of why I went on this journey to start with. Right. I think um, Nemo is a great example of a movie where they're not antagonists, but Nemo would be the prize, but Marlon and Dory, I think, would be the main relationship. Of course, Marlon and Dory. Are the, I mean, they are a little bit antagonistic at first. I mean, they don't. She doesn't mean to be, but she is a right. problem, right? Like, yeah. um, but no. And and you can watch how, his change is how he's treating her, right? Um, still, the prize is the thing we might lose at the end of act. You know, in the climax of the movie, that's okay. Um, but Dory's there with him, right? Um, for that moment, exactly. Dory's the one at the end of Act Two, hanging in that whale, who finally wakes him up. Marlon literally says in Hanging in the Whale at the end of Act Two, Nemo, you just can't do it. I just, he doesn't want anything to happen to him. And she says to Marlon, but if nothing ever happens to him, nothing will ever happen to him. Right? So often the main relationship is unwittingly, unknowingly carrying the solution and the answer to what has to shift this what has to shift in the main character. Now, this can change from IP to feature. I have a friend who produced The Shipping News, and in the book, the main relationship was clearly the Julianne Moore character. The love relationship really centered the book. But once they did the movie, they realized, oh, no, it's the daughter. And the daughter is the spiny relationship, and she is the one that's reflecting his his change. And so, you know, it it you really have to, it's a, something you really need to consider. Um, and it can change in your drafts and that's fine too. And that's appropriate because you're getting deeper and deeper into what you're trying to talk about. Um, okay. So the next one is on format. Jack, Jake, sorry. The next one is on format and Jake asked, there are the quote unquote rules I see bandied about in other groups. Often you can't put that in a spec. No one will read it or they'll toss it as soon as they see X, Y, or Z. That's not professional. What are the real hard and fast rules? If I should start out with too much text because I'm showing rather than telling or playing with the formatting to make a point or making the read better with lots of double spaces and new lines, dashes and ellipses, you know, then there's the no one cares if it's good. <laughs> um, so he's saying, well, what's accurate? Um, well, of course, I'm going to say there's no rules because there's not. And what works for one person doesn't work for the next unfortunately. Um, to me, it's, they're both true. And, you know, Jake right now is raising his fist at me. But um, I do believe if it's super good, nobody will ever worry about a dash or a thing that's in the wrong place or too much text. But boy, it better be good. It better be excellent. And it so draws me into the read that I don't even, I don't forget I'm reading because I'm suddenly seeing and in the movie, I'm having an experience on the page, right? And again, I'm talking about for professional submissions, not contests, 
Okay. Contests, I would guess, could be different because they have readers and levels of readers. And those early readers could be given the directive. And by the way, I don't know, but they I could understand if they're given the directive, does the person know formatting? Might be a box they have to check, right? So they might check no. So my gut, if I was me and I was an emerging writer, is for a contest, I'd probably just follow the format. I'd, I wouldn't go too crazy because it could boot you out at an early level before the bigger readers are coming in who don't care about that as much because they're looking for your voice. And a younger reader might be following a rule book, right? So for a contest, I, and you, and if your goal is to win that contest or to get up to be heard and seen, you might want to see about the format. Um the only formatting thing that to me can be just a killer, no matter how good you're writing, is the density on the page as an experience. If it's just giant blocks of prose, I do think even pro people looking at scripts, producers, development people, they could open your script and be like, ugh, ugh. Like, and unless you're a poet and, you know, Toni Morrison, odds are they're going to read like three lines and just be like, ugh. Right. Versus visually on the first page, they're like, oh, they're in. Right. They're just in and rolling. Um, I use dashes. I use whatever I think works. I don't worry about that stuff again, because if the read works, the read works. So that would be my think, two cents. Yeah. I, uh, a friend of the show, John August, talks about this a lot. And I think like it. I'm paraphrasing him, but he would say that like the job of the writer is to create the least amount of barrier between the page and the movie that's going to be playing in the reader's mind. So if you're breaking rules to make the read easier and more efficient and create a more immediate access to the mind movie that you're creating on the page, it might be a good reason to break that rule. But typically these rules have been designed because they already do that. Um, so unless the breaking the rule makes your read easier and will draw that reader in to read more quickly and excitedly, it's probably not a good idea to break it. And, you know, Jake, this is why we have people read our scripts and give us notes, right? Because I think it makes the read better. But I had three readers all say to me, I just got lost here. I just, I got so distracted, right? And as my friend Craig Perry, a producer says, if three people walk up and say you're drunk, hand over your keys, Right. Like if you get three readers who all tell you that the format is distracting, you you got to consider it. I'm not saying you got to change it, but you are getting feedback that is distracting, right? And don't get kind of, and I'm not saying this to you, Jake, because I don't know you, but I get up on my high horse sometimes and I'm like, but I like it and it's my creative work and blah, blah, blah. Well, actually it's for an audience, for readers and, you know, you just got to consider it. So that's also another re reason to be getting notes um, is, is it working? Is anybody giving you this note? And if they're just giving it to you because it's a rule, then, well, that's different. That's just, I don't, I don't know. That's not to me. And I, I would make a note on them as terms of what kind of reader they are and when I should be using that reader and when I shouldn't be using that reader. Um, because hopefully in your early, you know, the first five drafts that you're handing over to people to read for you should all be about the core engine stuff, right? Of, uh, David asks, do you recommend reading articles and watching YouTube videos about screenwriting or interviews with screenwriters before starting? It feels like these days there are a lot of good ones. You know, I, you know, everybody's different. My husband is the kind of writer who dives in and just wants to do his own thing and write, 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 right? I am the kind of writer who I love to hear 
how other people approach it. I love to hear insights. I love to hear tools that they have. More tools in my toolbox, the better. I'm not somebody for rules and people who say it's this way or no way. Then I'm like, okay, that's too black and white. It's I'm not interested in that. Um, so my answer is, yeah, if that floats your boat and gets you excited to go right, but if it makes you feel less than and makes you not want to go right, then don't, <laughs> right? Like you could also, so I guess what I'm saying is absolutely learn as much as you can. Please listen to writers, go take the Jody Foster's masterclass, do whatever you want to do, right? But uh, if it's self-sabotage, if it's unconscious sabotage to get your anxiety proof that you are not a writer and can't do that or you're not as good as or you didn't know that if, that, if that's how you're going to beat yourself up and get you to protect yourself to not write, then no. Then I would just go barf draft and who gives a crap about any of that stuff? Get the lump of clay up, get it up, get your story out. And then maybe as you're seeing, oh, I don't, you're getting your notes back. Now, specifically, go look for things that you're struggling with. People are telling you, I don't, the structure feels off, or I don't care about your main character, or what is this about, or all that stuff, right? Now, go search out YouTubes or books or things to answer these questions and see how other people have approached it. If you're a self-saboteur, um, if you're like me, or, you know, I sometimes I might be wasting time to be honest with you. Sometimes I'm like watching something because I'm afraid to go. Do. Okay, that's the truth of it. But I also love it. So um, you just have to know yourself enough. But I think, again, my own last thing I'll say on it is if it's a person who is saying there's only one way, then I would just be a little bit careful of that, right? If it's here is how I do it and it's inspiring, awesome. I also think you will find a huge correlation with those quote experts who say there's only one way and folks who haven't generated much produced material. I almost always find that the more successful a writer is, the more open they are to the idea of sort of the mystery of the artistic process. So uh, we get asked a lot, how do we vet experts when we're, you know, learning? I think like one of the quickest answers is how much have they gotten produced? You know, it's not always that simple, but at least sold. Um, I don't know. What do you think, Meg? Yeah, I think, um, listen, there are great teachers out there. So if somebody speaks to you and it really is helping you with your work and they don't have a ton of produced stuff or any produced stuff, hey, it's helping. It's it's improving your craft. Go for it. But if you really are looking for um, to do that kind of vetting, I would go look at their credit list. And, you know, I hope you like their stuff because you're taking their advice. Right. So that's the other thing. Do they have produced stuff? And do you respond to it? Because everybody responds to different things, right? Everybody likes different things. It can be somewhat subjective. So if you love this person's work, and again, just people who have great work don't always aren't always the best teachers either, right? So mm -hmm. it's uh, sure. you have to kind of suss it out for yourself. But yes, I do agree. People who've been in the trenches and had work produced and gotten through that chopper multiple times are going to have insights to it um, that are valuable, that are super valuable. Um, again, some of the best teachers I know that have helped me didn't have that. Um, so you just have to, uh, judge that for yourself. Um, Sarah asked about deadlines. What's the best way to give yourself realistic timelines and deadlines? Oh, I struggle with this. My son just asked me what motivates you because he's home from school and wanting to write and not feeling motivated. And I said, the honest truth, which is panic. Ah, uh, <laughs> 
You guys, I always, every time I start a project, every single time, I will do the timeline. I will be like, okay, it is due on this date to the studio, which is literally just the WGA idea of how long you get, which I think is 12 weeks to a first draft. I could be wrong, but that's in my mind. In my mind, you have 12 weeks to a first draft into a studio. They are looking for a first draft in which they can hand to their boss and say, this is a fucking movie. Holy shit. So what I do is I decide and listen, and if it's a spec, I still do that. I still say, this is the day my first draft is going to my readers. I've asked them. I've told them. I've given them a date. This is the day I'm sending you my draft, right? So to five people so that I have to call them all and tell them I'm late. And I always have one person in there who I don't want to call until I'm late. You know what I mean? I have a lot of people who love me dearly and will be supportive, but you know, <laughs> so, so that I have a little panic. So then I back it out 12 weeks. I know that before I send it out, I want to have some internal drafts myself. Now, if you're in a studio, maybe you're going to have a draft to a producer or a director, right? So that when that script goes into the studio, everybody's on board. You don't want your director going, I don't like it. <laughs> you don't want that to happen. You don't want to turn it into the studio and have the next phone call from the director. I don't like it. Hold back. Holy shit. Uh, so I will then, okay, and then I want, let's just say I'm doing on spec with a friend who's a producer. So this is the day she can expect it and the day that we're going to get notes from five people. That means I have to finish my draft to do get my own internal notes by this date. Now I'm backing it up. How many weeks do I want to do notes? Let's say two or three, right? Hoping I hit it. So I back out all the multiple drafts I want to do before I hand it out. And then, you know, but now I got to back out outline. I got to back out cards. And suddenly you're like, oh, my God, I have no time. <laughs> oh, my God. 12 weeks is super fast for do all this. Holy shit. I got to be done with carding by this date and an outline by this date and my first puke draft by this date. And then the next date is less than a puke draft. OK, now I've got it in. And here's what happens. I do the puke draft and I'm like, oh, my God. I have to go back to cards. I have to go back to outline because I found something else. And then I go back and now my schedule is off. It's completely off. Or I find it in cards and I'm like, oh my God, I thought I knew this. I just pitched it. I got the job or I told my friends, I'm. oh my God, I have to redo it. Well, then I redo it. Like I don't let the, I do a timeline so that my brain feels some fire under my ass and realizes that 12 weeks is not a long time. But then I allow myself to not hit it if uh, if it is for the best interest of the project. There's no point in hitting a deadline if it's not the story you want to give. Like my manager's always like, you got to turn in the thing that you're like, I fucking love this. Doesn't mean it's perfect. Doesn't mean there's not problems, but I can get on the phone with anybody and tell them why I did what I did and what I love about it. And yeah, that doesn't work, but here's why I think or whatever. So in terms of timelines and deadlines, I give myself one, I put it on the wall, I literally hang it up on the wall. I put it in my calendar on my iCal, right? I literally put turn in rough draft to producer on this date, right? Fit, go to outline on this date cards. Again, it might shift around, but that's how I do it. I, I literally have to give myself or I'm never doing it. I swear to God, I'm just never doing it. And on my brain, I think now when you work at Pixar, they do this for you. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a little easier because you really do have to turn it in like by three o'clock. Um, but I, it helps me to do that. It helps me to have people um, hold me to it. Um, the other thing I do, and the last thing I'll say on this, which really helped me. So I was working at Pixar, but I had a passion project 
and I had optioned it and I re- the, the rights and I really felt like I needed to take some time to write it, but I had this job that I needed to do. So I joined our Screenwriting Life Slack run by Hannah. I don't know if she's still running it. I just met her on the strike line. It was super fun. It was like, to me, I was like, oh my God, it's Hannah. It's Slack Hannah. Um, so, uh, and we uh, we got up, a group of us, I think there were 10 of us. And I think people were on the East Coast too. I got up and start, it was in my chair writing by 6 a.m. Because everybody in the Slack was there by 6 a.m. too. You know what I'm saying? And we all checked in. Are you here? Are you here? Are you here? Yeah, right. And then I wrote for an hour and a half till 7.30 when I have to go get my kids up and go to school. And I'd be like, okay, guys, I'm going. Some people kept going. Some people jumped because they had to go do their life. And it really helped me. It really, really helped me get up every morning, get my ass in the chair because if Hannah's going to be there, I'm going to be there. And Ted's going to be there for sure. And you know what I mean? Like, and it, well, I meant slightly competitive, but it wasn't out of competition. It was almost out of support. Do you know what I mean? Like, what if I don't show up, right? They, I don't know. It really, really helped me. So I don't know if you guys have ever done that. Um, I think Hannah or somebody just posted the Slack on on the Facebook page again. And there's groups now going from all over the world, from all over the world, people are jumping on. And it's also just community. I loved it. So that really, really helps. Give yourself deadlines, get on the Slack and, uh, you know, tell us what your deadlines are too. How about that? Ooh, that's a good one. That's a good one. And here's the thing. You're going to get stuck. You're going to get stuck. You're going to hit and it's going to not work. None of it's going to work. And you're going to fall down a crevice. But you have a due date. And this is the difference between a hobby and a career. You have a due date. I fell down a crevice at Pixar like a lot. There's nothing I can do about it. I still have to get pages done. Now I might call the director or somebody and be like, you guys, I'm in a crevice. And then people come in to help do that. Call your friends. I'm in a crevice. I have a due date. I need to sit for on Zoom and just talk this out. Because sometimes it helps me. I If I talk about it, I suddenly hear what I think. Does that make sense? Whereas if I'm just alone by myself, I spin in a circle of self-hatred versus... I know I want this, but then how does she get here? Because that doesn't line up to this. Like, it's completely opposite. But that might be cool, right? Like, if it's opposite, maybe that's even more authentic that it's totally opposite. Why am I fighting that it's opposite? Okay, it could be opposite, right? Like, why can't it be opposite? Nobody will expect it to be opposite. Okay, so then the problem is I'm not earning it, right? I'm just not earning it. Meanwhile, my friend is like nodding (laughs) and saying nothing. (laughs) Also, talk to me by Pixar where you're in a room talking like this for days trying to figure it out all together. So um, those are some tips of what I do in terms of times and deadlines. Um, it's a job. You got to do it. Go ahead. Accountability is so important, you know. Um, but I, I, for me personally, I, I had to recently just sign up for a class because I'm such a good student. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, my just- God. I totally did that as an emerging writer. I was always in a class because if I have to turn it in, I'm going to turn it in. Great, great, great advice. Great advice. And the last thing I'll say quick is um, one thing I'll do is just schedule a table read. I'll just, I have actors I really respect and admire and their valuable relationships. And if I schedule them to show up for a table read, um, I. Uh, oh my God, I that makes I, me want to throw up. That makes me want to throw up. They, <laughs> have, they have taste. And that so I. That scares me so bad. Oh my God. I, you are a brave man. You are well, brave. I will tell you. It pushes me to have a decent draft because I, I don't, I really don't oh, want to give I them. Oh, I bet shit. it does. So, oh my um, God. 
that's a good thing. And I have, I pushed it before, but at least it's, um, I think two out of three times I have set that date and I've had a pretty decent draft to have read at a table. So that's another option. That's amazing advice that I will never do. But you guys, I don't even like trim the bushes in my front yard because I'm so afraid that I'll fuck them up and then people will look and see, like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I'm clearly this is my button. I'm not publicly going to do that. Um, okay, so, uh, but great, great advice. Okay, so Maureen asks, how do you know if and when you are ready to join a writer's group? Is there a general level of experience that implied if one is looking for a writer's group? Should you, you know, have a certain number of screenplays or drafts? Um, and then her part two of that is how do you know how to give good notes? So I think we have an entire episode on giving notes that I would go and listen to because it was super fun. And we now have a T-shirt on our web, on our merch site that says uh, F-U-F-M. Oh, no, F-Y-F-M. What's next? It's really great. People ask you about it and you get to tell them it means fuck you, fuck me. What's next? And then they're like, what? You're like, it's an inside joke. Um, uh, so uh in terms of giving notes, um, Maureen, go and listen to that episode. Um, but mostly my one-liner is um, giving notes is asking questions, especially if you're in a writer's group. You're not there as a quote-unquote expert. You're there as a sounding board and as an audience member. And well, the way I approach notes, no matter what I'm doing, be that at Pixar or be that uh, as a consultant or be that with a best friend, I ask questions or be with myself. Honestly, the notes to myself is why this and why doesn't that work and what's going on here and what is this about? And, you know, so I ask questions and then the answers tell you what next questions to ask. Right. So I might go in thinking, well, here's the big things that I think are not working, but you don't really know because you're not inside this head and it's not your dream. And your job as a notes giver, especially in a writer's group, is not to make their script your dream and your story. Your job is to make it their story. So ask a lot of questions. And in terms of when are you ready, it depends on the group. You know, um, I think a lot of groups, it would be good if you are more, um, if the group is more experienced, it's always good to have a beginner. It's always, always good because they ask crazy questions sometimes. <laughs> they ask the thing coming out of left field because they are the audience, right? They're not the expert. They're not writers. They are the audience. And uh it's always good. Um, and as long as everybody knows you're a beginner and you're trying, they'll love it. They'll they'll love helping you. So it's just about being honest with any group you're joining. And are they open to somebody who's just beginning? I would hope they are. The smart ones will be. Um, you can also put a group together yourself of other beginners. And um, you'll all rise together as you ask questions. And it's always good to have a more experienced person to ask in that group to help get you guys um, moving quicker up the ladder of understanding, but you don't have to. You don't have to. I started a writer's group when I was an emerging writer. None of us knew what the hell we were doing, but we were all audiences. We could all ask the questions, right? Because it's it has to it has to work no matter if your aunt is reading it or somebody who's a professional writer. It, they still have to get it, right? Think about it. Like my sister-in-law, Karen, who I love, is a great audience for my scripts because she, if she doesn't get it, she doesn't get it. And uh, and neither will the studio executive because they're reading lightning fast, right? So uh, I I think more I, I think that Maureen, what I would say to you is, just do it, just go ahead and get in a group. I understand your brain is worried about it. Your brain is concerned about exposing yourself, feeling vulnerable, having people judge you. I completely get that, and it's all legit fears and vulnerability 
and it's real. You will, you will have people respond to your work and you will feel vulnerable, but the only way to do it is to just do it. Just get in the water. Um, and if the group isn't supportive, then get out of that group. The other thing is don't be a fucking, you know, sadist, you guys. If the group is not supportive and it's not helping you with your writer, it's not the right group for you. And go get another group. Start your own group with supportive people. Um, so you got this, Marine. Do it. Join a group. By far the most important thing, especially if you're joining a group as a new member, is to be conscientious and diligent. So I think, you know, there are groups with great writers, but they might not get their pages done or they might not read or they might not offer good notes. And it is far worse to be an experienced writer who half-asses their group than an emerging writer who's really, really deeply committed to fulfilling their duties of the group. Um, so especially as a new member of a group, that's the best way to not only ingratiate yourself in the group and be an important and valued member of the group, but really grow fast. I think like that is a fast way to put yourself in the crucible of moving quickly in your emerging writer career. So I would recommend we had Alicia Brophy and Scott Miles on our show. Um, they talk about in five years, they were like a group of emerging writers who ended up winning three separate nickel fellowships in three different years because they were committed to getting pages done. So that's a huge part of it. Great, great advice. Um, okay, Brianna asked, um, she's written a few scripts, received feedback from friends, edited drafts. Is it a good point for her to go out into the world to get you know the pro career level um, submissions? What do I do next? How do I get the script out to potential producers, directors, agents? How do I use it to set up generals? How do you go from writing for yourself, hiding it away on your computer to stepping out of your comfort zone and sharing your lava? Okay, so two separate questions. Well, lots of questions in there. The first one is, um, so this is just me, take it or leave it, Brianna, but um, and, and you're, you're not telling me here, you said you've written a few scripts and received feedbacks from friends and edited drafts, but I don't know how many, right? So um, the truth is, I would be sure you've written at least full rewrites five times before you were ever thinking about handing it to a pro. And I would hope you're getting feedback on the notes like, I fucking love this, right? They're still not asking you really core basic questions um, because I know it's, and again, it's all language, Brianna, so take it this or leave it. But when you say edited drafts, I get a little worried, right? Um, I get, because it's not really editing, it's revising, it's throwing it out, it's starting over, it's shifting big, big things, right? Now, if you're just talking about to get notes at all from even friends or a group, yeah, absolutely do it. Do it as soon as you can because, you know, you're going to get great notes and great insights. But if you're talking about when it's time to go out to the pro world, here's what I'll say. You can only go out that with that script one time because it's going to get coverage on it. And that coverage, even if you revise it and it's the best script ever, it lives with that script. It just travels around with it. Um, so... I think the most important thing is to have, and you can't just have one script to sell. You've got to have another script ready to go somewhat in the same vein somewhere so that they can see this is who you are as a writer and that you're not a one trick pony, right? So it's kind of like setting yourself up for your career, right? And it really has to be something that rises above and, and, there's going to be a lot of scripts you write that no one will ever see professionally because they were just there to teach you to get you to the next script. I have them. I could show you them in a box over here because I wrote them before they would be digital. But, you know, they're just literally in a box in my attic because they weren't they didn't 
actually bear fruit to show to people, but they taught me so much. So once you are ready and you have that level and you've done that level of revisions, um, then it is time to go out. Um, you only get a general once you've really gotten a script that people are talking about and an agent's probably sent you out on, and then you're pitching new ideas, right? So um, in terms of how to get it out to potential directors and agents, um, I do think contests are good. Some are better. I think it's all about mentorship and ones that actually are getting them out to people. I do think roadmap writers and Coverfly, and there are people who have literally set up systems to help you know not just that your script is ready, but how to sell yourself, how you are you are a brand going out into the marketplace. So in terms of that pro level, um, that's when you're ready for the big time, so to speak, right? So um, I do think those a lot of those organizations are good to help you start making those steps. Um, and, and before that is doing a lot of rewriting and getting tougher and tougher critics on your work you know, that aren't at the pro level yet, right? Like that friend you have that likes nothing, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah, because other people are asking, Cameron's asking, you know, how do we start our careers? How many scripts should we have? Um, I per- and then should we seek representation? I personally think the representatives will find you. And I know everybody's rolling their eyes and going, Ugh. but the truth is I would personally be um, looking for a producer who loves work like your work, needs to find something again not necessarily indie if you're going to direct it yourself and stuff the those big producers aren't going to do that um but if we're talking about you really want to get in the industry as a writer we're working at you know um studios and and mainstream um i would be i would be the producers are looking for you they're looking for great stories that's what i would be doing versus representation the representation will will find you after you get something set up. Again, other than managers, which is kind of a cross between a producer and a rep, and those I would, again, I think you really under, need to understand how you're selling yourself. So I would have at least two to three samples that are fucking awesome and ready to go, having ideas of other things you'd want to to um, work on, other story ideas, and you're ready to, you know what your brand is, you know how to get yourself out there, you know, they talk about personal log lines, all of that. You really, that's the kind of, top tier stuff to get to. And it takes it takes time, you guys. The other thing is, but people don't tell you, is what I'm talking about takes years to do. It takes years to get that level of scripts ready to go out and yourself, you know, in your mind, understanding who you are as a writer. It can take years of work to do. And that can seem disappointing, but the truth is, what other art would not take years for you to get into a gallery, for you to get into the glass, you know, it's it just, that's just what this is. Um, any other thoughts? I heard an um, aphorism once about, you know, especially like the culture of Los Angeles, where if you've written a script that's good enough, you can chuck it off the 405 into traffic and you'll get a call about it the next day. And of course it's a facetious story, but it's so true that like people I think are so desperate to get, kind of get on the career track and get on that train maybe before the train is ready. But if you build the world's fastest, best bullet train, it will go to every, this metaphor is not quite working, but it's material, your material, if it's good enough, they don't care. They, they are going to be dying to meet you. So if, if you're going to someplace like Sinistory or someplace or Sundance or someplace that has mentors, I promise you, though, I'll talk about your script if it's fucking awesome. And then you'll be a chip that they're playing to call their friend who's a manager and be like, you are not going to believe it. I found somebody like when you in that level, it has voice. It's unique. It feels authentic. 
and it's new and fresh and something ex- they're excited about, right? Like a lot of times people say to me, um, well, this I found this true story and it's amazing that it really happened. Well, that is not yet what we're talking about, right? I'm not saying don't do that one, but where are you in it? Why is the the writing new and different? They don't necessarily care that it really happened, right? I mean, they do, but not really. Like, what about it? Um, what about this character is new and fresh? What about this relationship? I can't stop reading about this relationship. I need this to know more about this relationship and what's going to happen to it, right? How is the pot boiling? Um, so there's a, that's a lot. It's a lot of layers to to be able to do. I'd also add to just from a producer perspective and going through the UCLA producer program training, trying to find material for my thesis uh, to produce, you know, the blacklist is a really great resource too. If you're reviewed on the blacklist by multiple people and it's like, it hits the recommend, you know, um, uh, uh, front page of the blacklist that can, you know, get you some attention, but it can also give you some insight into what people are responding to as well. Um, so just something, cause you know, I feel like I read all the scripts that I could on blacklist awesome. for material. <laughs> no, that's great. And young producers are the best people to find because guess what? Their career is going to rise when yours rises and they have a lot of energy to go out and hit the pavement and get the script into people's hands. Like it's fun to, you know, query the super duper producer who's got a who's got a deal on a lot and has made all these movies. Yeah, sure. But you know who's going to do all the hard work and work their ass off and for no money? like that young producer who's looking to break in and make their own name and guess who's going to protect your script? Hopefully them. Right. So great, great advice. That's what I would do now as a merging writer. I'd find you Savannah. <laughs> okay. We can get that. So you don't get a million subscriptions. Um, uh, within this some realm of questioning, we have a question from, um, Farah, I believe is how you would pronounce it. When one is starting out writing is trying to seek a coach or a mentor. What is the place? best place to go about finding one um because she's having tricky times several attempts to start on her own just ends up in overwhelm each time sometimes you'll have a friend who can be a good coach for you that you just find them and they kind of get you but i don't if you're really there in that place i don't think there's anything wrong with hiring a good consultant i think it's money well spent you'll learn more than you can possibly imagine not just about your script, but about writing and how you write and what your voice is and what your strength is. Now, not all consultants are um, great, of course, or the best. We always recommend Pat Verducci as somebody, um, but there are other great consultants out there. And anybody listening who wants to put on their on our Facebook page a consultant that you loved, you know, as a resource, that's great. So I would say it, it can be worth it. Um, or take a class, you know, like if you are a truly emerging writer, go to UCLA Extension and take a class and you'll get some mentoring, I'll tell you, because that teacher is going to really um, one-on-one with you in that class. Um, and Eugene asked, how do I know if I can actually make it in this as a viable career? Um, is it foolish to hope that I could be lucky and hardworking enough and skilled enough to become a working writer? Yeah, you never know, right? I mean... I guess my only answer is what other people have said. If you just don't have any other choice, (laughs) you know, it's just in your heart. It's in your soul. The stories keep coming. The tap is on and it's either right or have an anxiety attack (laughs) and catastrophize like I do. Um, You're a writer. You're a writer. So write and do it. And um, 
it is all to me it's more about the hard working than the quote unquote talent yes there are talented people uh, for sure but there's plenty of talented people who didn't work hard enough and just kind of went off and did something else and there's plenty of people who might have quote unquote not been the most talented in the class but they are working professional writers who are amazing writers now because they worked their ass off I will say this a million times. As an emerging writer, it is quantity over quality. You just have to write a lot, a lot, a lot, right? So I always say, go for it, man. Like, you, what's the worst case scenario, Eugene? It doesn't happen. But you, A, you know you tried, and B, you wrote these stories, and B, C, I really do believe they'll grow into something else. I know somebody who started writing scripts and she had a story and it just didn't work. And she wrote a book and guess what? It got published and she's a novelist. Like, I don't know why the universe is having you come here first, but this is where it's having you come. Just go and find out. Walk into the dark woods. Be a writer. See where it goes. Right? There are no guarantees. You're right. There are no guarantees. But it sounds like your vulnerable anxiety brain is using this as a way to get you to stop, which to me means there might be something really interesting in there. Eugene, there might be a lot of lava sitting right there because your brain is throwing statistics at you. Uh-oh, time or maybe someone in your life. And then I have to ask why that person's in your life, that they're discouraging you. Go for it. Try it. And Eugene, come on the Patreon. Pitch me. Let's see. Let's go. Come on. Um. Okay, I'm not going to answer the question on the strike because we did a whole part. We did a whole a thing on that. Um. Research. Taylor asked, how do you turn your brainstorming into your first draft? When do you stop your research and just start? And Kevin asked about how much is too much research, especially if you're writing in a specific time period. Oh, I know. Research is my favorite way to avoid stuff, man. It's my favorite way. And great, great writers like Jane Anderson, who's been on the show, her research is interviewing people. Like when we did a, a thing in the South uh, about a woman living in a trailer park, she went out to trailer parks and did, interviewed a lot of people. And boy, the specificity she gets in terms of people living in those circumstances in those worlds and how they see things. And I just highly, highly recommend that. Um, and uh, all I can say is it's like a feeling in your body that you know, okay, number one, do you have your timeline that when it, you set your research should be done, go ahead, put a date in the calendar, give yourself a, de a de drop dead, no more research. Um, maybe you're going to puke draft at some point and then go back to research because in your puke draft, you realize, I don't actually know what this is. So I have to go. I mean, I would go back and forth. That's what I do. I go, I do a lot of research, but then I'll just start writing scenes. I'll just start writing ideas. Maybe I'm starting to card, and but I'm still doing research. So I don't do one and then the other. I kind of do them both simultaneously, if that makes sense. And the research is informing it and the writing is informing what I need to research. So I don't, because you can avoid by researching too much for sure, because it's such a fun place to be. Um, but um, I'll tell you, I also did a project that I loved so much. I pitched it to my agents. They were all excited. And then the research scared the shit out of me. And uh, I stopped. I dropped it. And I regret that. I regret that. I should have done what I just, the advice I gave you and started writing scenes so that the heat and fun of the scenes could have been my buoy under the as the waves of oh my god this time period is humongous and i don't know anything about it and i have to go get an expert and where am i going to get an expert and i don't i just don't know if i'm up. i don't think i can do it i just don't think i'm good enough i don't think i can do it and poof there it goes but if i had been writing and i had been writing scenes that i don't care about and i'm just going to throw them away they're just exercises the voices of the characters could have carried me through as something to fight for 
in the in the overwhelm. So that's just, you know, don't do what I did. It's <laughs> my advice. I think most historical movies and TV shows, the research is a really important part of the color of the movie and like the shades and the textures and the subtlety of why we love it. But I do think the core reason we fall in love with any historical film is because of the relationships and the characters who populate the movie. And so if you're spending all of your time saying this research is the most important thing that's going to make sure that this movie is perfect, you might be compensating for the core of your story that maybe isn't quite there yet. It's just something to think about as a No, it's a hundred percent true. Um, this thing that I gave up on, I took it to my husband who's a writer and I was like, can you see this? I just got overwhelmed and scared. And this is like years later and his brain immediately isn't going to the research because he didn't do any. He was literally like, well, who's with her and why do we care about them? And if we had to walk into your manager's office right now, what are we pitching this as? Like, what is this? What is this? Like, it's a time period. It's a true story. Blah, 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 blah. Who cares? What is this? Right. Can, what is our comp? Right. What is our comp for the relationships? What is our comp for the tone? Like he kind of took a kind of outside in approach that helped because suddenly I got excited again because I wasn't research and 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 period is not the story. I totally agree, Jeff. It is just the background. It is just the and it could create story. Right. Because if it's a woman of a certain period, she has no access to things. Blah, blah, blah. Um, but yeah, stay connected to your characters and why you love it and why you even started the journey into this research. So Naomi asked, how do you find creative energy to write when there's an eight to 10 mentality depleting workday that you must do? I know, right? I've been there so many times. And like I said, even sometimes when I'm working on a project, I have passion projects that I've been lapsing too long and I do need to find that 6 a.m. And I have kids, right? So I know I got to do it at six is I got to get up to get the kids to school, blah, blah, blah. By the way, what am I exercising? Um, you know, the, the easy answer, which means it is too easy, is because you love it, because the character needs you, because the character's floundering and not coming into the world if you don't do it, because you didn't do it and now somebody else did and you're watching it on television, which is always a fun experience, right? Um, that's the most important reason to do it, but of course, it's, now you've done that, you've spent your 12 weeks, you have your first draft, you have notes, you feel overwhelmed, and you're still digging it out mentally every day. Um, that is just where, what jo what Jeff is talking about. That's just the hard work of it. And nobody, nobody, nobody gets away with not doing it. It could be, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda talks about he didn't go to a party for two years because he was right in Hamilton. He had already had stuff, already shows up and going, but he had to figure out that show, right? There is sacrifice to it on the altar of to the muses, right? Which is you aren't going to that party and you aren't doing that thing. I'm not telling you to go, go to all the parties because sometimes you need to go to a party. But it's, it is literally that that ability to do that can be the deciding factor and how much you want it and how much that story's banging on your head. And I'm not particularly great at it. Like I said, I motivate by panic. So <laughs> I'm not, I don't, I don't have a magic wand to tell you how to do it other than joy than slack. That's a great way to do it. Um, take a class because now you have a due date. So you're going to have to get up early and do it. 
Um, and it is the hardest time, Naomi, when it's not going well. When the whole thing just fell into a thousand pieces at your feet and you still have to get up early and do it. And your brain is like, what the fuck for? It all just fell apart. I just gave all of these hours of my life. I didn't go to that party. I didn't do that. And it's a piece of shit. But here's the reason that's training ground for you. Because there's going to become a moment that you're on a pro project. It's due. And guess what? It all fell to shit. I cannot tell you how many weekends I've worked as a pro. More than I ever worked as an emerging writer. Because when you got a due date and you've got crew waiting for you, you've got a director waiting for you, and it doesn't work, all that shit you pitched, man, you better make it work. So it's training ground. That feeling of I still have to work and I'm not inspired and I don't know what to do and I still have to sit here and work, that is being a pro writer. That is being a pro writer. I don't care what anybody else says. Every pro writer, I don't care how many Academy Awards they've won, sits at their computer and goes, none of this works. I have worked all weekend. I still don't have an answer. Holy shit. I have to write this scene again. I got to go back to cards again. I have to go back to outline again. I'm going to have to blow this whole thing up again. That's my answer. Yep. That that's that's the gig, man. And then the gig is highs of, oh, my God, it worked. I just sat here. It's Sunday night at six o'clock and I think I got it. Oh, my God. That's so much better. I never would have got here except I sat my ass down all day Sunday and I got here. And that's so much better. And that high to me is worth the slog up the mountain and the self-doubt and the panic of it doesn't work, and the weekend gone. And I'll both end, P.S., I also had to finally say, too many weekends. My kids are missing me. All right? So there will come other days that you're going to choose, right? And you can just, that's, a, that's such a personal, a personal, personal moment. Anything to add, you guys? I mean, I, after that, I feel like it's blasphemous for me to speak because that was such a brilliant <laughs> I think you just won the Academy Award for Best Beautifully Succinct Monologue. But I will say quickly, um, it what Meg is saying is it is sometimes really fucking hard. I think like I, I assumed that I wasn't a writer because I was like, I'm mentally exhausted. I'm sitting at the page and this feels like such a chore. And it shouldn't always feel that way, but it was such a know. gift. I don't yeah, know. Well, <laughs> it often feels that way for me. <laughs> yeah. And I think like, this just the gift of like, that's nothing to panic about. Like, I do think writing is one of the hardest things in the world. And like, whether you're a pro and emerging writer, we're creating something out of nothing. Like even just getting words on a page and creating anything is kind of a miracle because you made something out of nothing. Like how amazing. So if it feels really hard, that does not mean you're not a writer. It actually probably means you are. So. And Naomi, um, I, I, I see in your question too, how do you find the energy to write mentally when it's you're so depleted and number one of course always are you too depleted do you need to take a break like you're the only person who can answer that but i do hear that too and sometimes we get depleted because all we can see is the problems maybe you need to go have fun maybe you need to say okay fuck everything i was working on what would be the most fun to write right now that's not even in the script i don't even care like okay she like you just do a writing exercise Okay, this is the day my character found a three-legged, one-eyed dog. And I'm just going to have fun writing it. Because you just got to get some water in the riverbed. 
right? And I know that's hard because your brain is like, you do not have time to be doing this. You are getting up at six o'clock in the morning. Why are you writing about a one three-legged one-eyed dog? Well, because you need to, because you've lost and you don't have any energy left. You got to reconnect to the story because I do believe once you're connected to a story and you love those characters and you love those relationships and kind of you can't wait to see what happens next, you're going to get up. You're going to work on the weekends. It'll be easier, right? So sometimes it's just to to get that creative energy back is you figure out what would be fun for you to do, right? I don't care if it's in order. I don't care if it's in the script. I don't care. It will be bountiful to help you reconnect to your project. Haley asked, how do you get over the mental block of not becoming, of not coming from a writing background and just allowing yourself to write, getting past the point of feeling like a fraud and just letting yourself start somewhere? Yeah. I don't know that you ever get past the point of feeling like a fraud, honestly. Um, You get past the point of thinking, I can't do it because, well, you did it in the past. And so maybe you can do it. That does help. Um, I tend to be somebody who takes on something new every time, too. So I always feel like I'm like, I don't know, I'm jumping out further than I've ever jumped before. Um, If you haven't come from a writing background, what I will say to you is none of us did originally. Right. Everybody started somewhere writing. Um, Every one of us has gone off and done other things and come back. Um, And the only way you learn to write, really, it's so great to take classes. It's so great to come to our Patreon and get feedback. Those are all part of the writing process and they're part of learning. But the only way your brain actually learns is writing. That is the only way. You have to actually just write. So maybe, Haley, my answer to you is quantity over quality. I literally want you to say this year, I'm going to write this many things this many times. I'm going to write two scripts, three versions, three complete revisions each. Whatever you pick. But it's about quantity. If you're writing a novel, we'd probably do word count or page count or something, right? Um, There is... If you're really blocked about it, super blocked about it, I would start doing morning pages, which is comes from the artist way where you get up and you write for a half hour, three pages longhand, you know, with your hand, not on the on the typewriter, on the computer typewriter. What century am I in? Um, just to see what comes up. What is this block really about? Do you feel like you're not worthy? Do you feel like you don't deserve it? Um, what voice is that? Whose voice is that? Who told you that? And is that a voice you want? in your head. And I know you can't necessarily get rid of it, but sometimes if you can name it or say, no, that is my aunt Sheila's voice because my aunt Sheila never went after her dream. And so she's scared to death that if I get it, what she wasted her life. So better for her to constantly sabotage me. So I can't say you can get aunt Sheila out of your head, but what you do is you're like, thank you, aunt Sheila. I'm going to write anyways. So the only way to do it, is to get past that mental block in my mind is to do it as right badly. That's what I do. I'm like, okay, today my goal is to write as badly as humanly possible. I'm going to sit here for at least an hour and a half, two sessions of an hour and a half, and I'm going to write this thing in my head as badly as I can. There's this book called Art and Fear, and this is just like a 30-second parable exactly about what you're talking about. So I'm going to steal it. It's from Ted Orland, but he says... A ceramics teacher announced on an opening day of his class that he was dividing the class into two groups. All those on the left side of the studio, he said, would be graded solely on the quantity of the work they produced. 
and right solely on its quality. His quantity group, 50, 50 pounds of pots rated an A, 40 pounds of B, and so on. And those being graded on quality, however, needed to produce only one pot, albeit a perfect one, to get an A. Well, when grading time came, a curious fact emerged. The groups of the highest quality were all produced by the group being graded for quantity. It seems like it seems that while the quantity group was busily churning out piles of work and learning from their mistakes, the quality group had sat theorizing about perfection and in the end had little more to show for their efforts than, than grandiose theories in a pile of dead clay. <laughs> Just like such a fascinating parable. And it is art. So That's how art works. That's how art works. Yeah. And I think that we often have reasons that we don't want to do it or take that chance because we don't come a writing, from a writing background or we're not talented enough. We're not as talented as our friend in college who could write so well and I can't write that well. Or we, I, I, we can come up with a million reasons to not do it. And some of which might be valid. I'm not saying they're not valid. They're not real. Um but ultimately, those people that you're comparing yourself to who have a writing background and who are, quote unquote, more talented, potentially, doesn't mean they're making it because if they don't work hard, guess what? They don't make it either. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Um, the last thing I'll say about it is um, I have a friend who's an artist um, and she took a class in college and they worked all semester and had many, many, many drawings. Um, and their final was to pin them up on the board. And so they had to pick, go, go up and pin them up, their entire portfolio for the year. And then the final was, which they didn't know until the day, rip it up. Rip it all up. And that's how they passed the class. The good ones, the bad ones, the inspirational ones, the breakthrough ones, the best thing I've ever drawn, rip it up. Because that's art, man, because you have to get to a point, and this takes time, this just takes time, that you unconsciously, full body understand it's some piece of your brain, whether you'll ever get away from ever believing it's true or not, that you think it's a well with a tiny piece, little, little inch of water in it. So you're like, but this version of my script... I, I just, that's the best I'll ever do. And it got me into contests and it got me a mentor and that's it. And I'm telling you, throw it away. Start again. Yeah, it's good. It's not great. Start again. Or you're telling yourself, I don't have this. I don't have that. The well, the water in my well, when I try to pull up a bucket, I get mud with my water. Why am I doing this? Because what you're don't yet understand is it's not an inch of water in the well. It's an ocean. It's an ocean. And it's not going to come into the well and up in the bucket until you just sit there and do it over and over and over and toss it out and go again. Rip it up, go again. Throw it out, revise it, go again. Go again, go again. You can't hold it like a precious stone, right? And you can't hold your doubts and your excuses for why you're not doing it like the most precious thing you have. Those are not the most precious things you have. I understand your survival brain's telling you they are to protect you, but the ocean is waiting. I promise you, it's down there. It's down there. I can't believe sometimes the shit that I come up with. Never in a million years at the beginning of the day could I have told you 
that I was going to come up with that. Never, ever, ever. I probably started the day with, oh my God, this is horrible. I'm lost. I'm fucked. How can I get out of this? And then there it is. And you just eventually start to trust it. And the muses start to trust you because you're sitting down every day. So a lot of looking back on our questions, a lot of the questions are questions that I have still. But if I'm honest with myself about myself, it's fear. Am I doing this right? Why am I bothering? Will I ever even make anything out of this in terms of an actual thing or a career? Right? Legit questions. All coming from a vulnerable fear place. And the only answer to any of them is right. Find out. It's there. That's the end. <laughs> That's I don't know. <laughs> Why do I feel like you're talking right to me? It's one of those shows again. You're like, yeah. Savannah. Savannah, really? still, Savannah, I am still waiting. I know. I I have a due date. I have a due date. I am still writing. I'm going to Africa and I'm coming back. But then you're going to go produce. See? <laughs> I'm saying this to uh, our interns, too. I'm saying this to you, too. I know. Well, yes. Jeff, you have a revision that's due. I do, I know. They gave me great notes and they broke my brain. But it's been good. <laughs> I've got back in and I'm actually like I'm I think F U F me took me a little longer than normal Meg, no offense. <laughs> I say that with so much love in my heart. <laughs> no, you can say fuck me. That's all you want. Just don't get stuck there. That's my only ask. Listen, or my ask is, if you got stuck there, I want you to call me and say, I'm stuck and fuck you. I'm just stuck here. And then we're going to meet again and we're going to work it out. Great. No, you know what? I um, I actually like it's I'm very excited about where I am right now. So it's all good. All right. So here's um, my only question to you, Jeff, in terms of yeah. if you want me to continue and you don't have to, by the way, you can go to Lori and you can go to friends. Like if you just want me to come back a different time, totally fine. But if you do, I do think it should be like like a picture outline like lump Sorry. don't write a whole script yeah I'm, I'm not saying you shouldn't write scenes and do your own work but if you want to don't feel like you have to rewrite a whole script to come back to me because then I when i when i blow pieces of it up again i'll feel bad <laughs> right no it's okay i'm like when actually, i do the I pixar process on your head i will feel bad i've become much comfier page one rewrites but i think you're right that maybe i'm actually using that as a stall tactic um so that's an interesting i feel like it this feels more protective to say no i've got the whole script and i've rewritten a million times well it feels you feel safer right right and i'm not saying there isn't a time for that there totally is a time for yeah. that like literally my manager's saying that to me like meg stop bringing everybody in right so uh but in terms of my process and how i work i i go i rip it up i go again go again right till we get to that thing that it goes bang right and by the way you might have that now i'm not saying you don't but um yeah. anyways whatever do whatever you want no you're right no i thought this recording was <laughs> like um, we should do a quick wrap out for all this. right sorry okay I, I was, oh sorry no go ahead savannah i was just saying like if anything if our beginner listeners get this note about or, or the advice about perfectionism like and if that gets through and trying to let go a little bit of that, you know, I mean, we'll just 
that's what I hope everyone. Me too. Me too. Just kind of like really locked in that fear, you know? Um, yeah. Sorry. Okay. No, I hear you. I agree. All right. So how should we go out? Jeff, why don't you like sum it up? Like, thanks for listening. And then I'll say. We have. What? Yeah. I, Cause that's. Um, Meg, thank you so much. And to, of course, Lorian's not here, but just to get a little personal, I'm looking at a team of Meg and Savannah and Lorian and our wonderful interns, Potty and Nick, who are listening. And um, I am really lucky to be working on a team with such brilliant collaborators. So super, super duper thanks to our listeners. Um, you all are really actually in so many ways the most important part of our show because God knows we wouldn't be doing this if no one listened to the show. So actually, let's be honest, we probably still would. <laughs> it's <laughs> And I'll quickly say a great way to also help with the show is to write us a review on Apple Podcasts. But either way, thanks to our listeners. Thanks to Megan Lorian. Uh, I want to quickly plug the Patreon, which is a really fun way to sort of engage with our show on a different level. I always consider it sort of like um, TSL 2.0, where, of course, you're getting everything you want with the main podcast, but you'll get even more if you go check us out over on Patreon for a small monthly fee. So, um, you know, what? I don't even like the word fee. A small... Uh, you can pitch in a small monthly throw into our pot and then hop in and uh, support. Get to, it just supports yes. the show so that we can keep doing this. That's all. That's, That's all. All right, you guys. So keep writing. And remember, you are not alone. <laughs>